How can education be a way to create more belonging and contribution for young people? Today, I have the delight of sharing Nikolai Pizarro of Raising Readers. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Frame this conversation, I want to go back to the 2021-2022 school year. Even though the initial blows of pandemic schooling had already been experienced, collectively we were all living in the aftershocks and reverberations of what went down in 2020. Personally, my eldest son was just finishing up his SK year and it was a chaotic time in his classroom. I remember having the realization that I should teach him to read because it might be hard for him to learn in his classroom. At about the same time, I found the work of Nikolai Pizarro online and her message made sense to me. Nikolai, through her handle Raising Readers, works with parents to, as she says it best, center home as epicenter or create humanity-centered literacy instruction. In this conversation, we get into how literacy can be used as a tool for liberation, how schools can decenter themselves, the brave moves that some teachers make when they realize children are suffering, and the educational trauma that so many adults have experienced when they were children. Oh, and the science of reading. We get deep into those waters in this episode as well. Nikolai is one of those people that I just want to be near to soak up their wisdom and way of being. She went through the traditional system all the way to earn a freaking MBA, but then she saw a different path for her own children and boldly charted a new course for her family, but also for all families. This is a good one. This is an important one. This is a powerful one. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Nikolai Pizarro of Raising Readers. So Nikolai, I have been a huge fan of the activism and the advocacy work that you've been doing in the world of literacy. So I am just simply delighted to get to talk with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am just as excited. I feel like we're fangirling over here. We are fangirling. And I think that the the love will be felt by everybody listening to this podcast after this conversation. So I want to just jump right in because you are very active on Instagram. This is how I found you, like in the depths of the pandemic when my child was struggling to read and like somehow the algorithm knew that I needed to find you. And I'm so grateful for that. I want to highlight a post that you wrote relatively recently. I'm going to quote you back to yourself. I hope that's not too weird. You said, we have more apps, programs, educational toys, YouTube videos in the private early education space than ever. And the children are still struggling to read. A big reason behind this is that parents are marketed products to buy instead of knowledge to have. If you as a parent understand what to do and why, you will spend less time buying and doing all the things and more time in relationship and connection with your child doing the right things. There is power in the knowing. That sounds like me. Yes. I just want to let that like sink in for everyone listening because it's so, I mean, I, I know why. I found you and why I needed to find you at the time. But can you share with everybody how you view literacy as a tool for liberation? Absolutely. There's three pieces of that answer. So I'll dive into the first. And that is that 
confusion creates consumers. And so the more confusion there is in the marketplace, the more people buy, right? And so there's a lot of consumerism behind this function. And when we think about literacy, it is a tool for liberation, but I want to pause it and say the lack of that is a mechanism for our consumption. And when you're in a capitalist, right, consumption-driven economy, that's what's necessary in the marketplace. And whether it's curriculum developers or toy developers or any of those people, right, what drives them is not what drives you and me or drives anybody who really is trying to empower people. It's two separate things. And what we have done is that we're, we're thinking that we all have the same mission and the same intent, and we don't. And so as parents, we have to understand that they're selling things, right? And that that has nothing to do with liberation and empowerment. And so that's why there's a million things and no knowledge on how to use them. Uh, we have to get away from saying those malicious or not. Really, it's inconsequential. It's profit-driven. It's what it is. And so, so that's profit-driven. It's not really driven to get you to know a child or the child to get to learn to read or any of those things. It's just like we're selling units of production. We see it all the time where you have you might have a product that's created for a school-aged child. Now you know that preschool is a thing and you just say, oh, well, this product is for three plus, right? And now you have a parent that is has a three-year-old, sees a box that says three plus, they're thinking choking hazard <laughs> and, and selling more units. Is that product developmentally appropriate for a three-year-old? No, right? But none of this is being communicated to, to parents and caregivers. This is all about selling units of production. And so that's kind of goes to where the first part of the quote is. With regards to literacy as a tool for liberation, um, there's two pieces of that. When you have literacy, you have access to self-advocacy. You have access to, at a, at a very young level, right? You can say, with my children, when we have a discord when the, or there's um, there's something that we don't agree on, we write our points. We reflect. We say, okay, well, I want to listen to you. I'm in my process because I'm an adult and I have my ish. And you have your other lens because you're just got here and you have this other beautiful lens. Can we sit down and reflect? Can we write our pros and cons? Can we do that process? That process involves literacy, that we can read each other's point. There's so much power in the ability to pause and reflect and share in a way that's permanent and that's not reactionary. That alone is a huge tool to shift the culture of your home that is not accessible if you don't have a tool like the ability to read and write, hmm. right, and pause. And to see that as a tool, not to see it as a thing that you do for school, but to actually see it as a tool. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So there's so many, when I think about literacy, I, I know that you need it for school. Absolutely. But if we can shift that and say, we need this for life and the quality of life that we want to have and the way that we want to engage with the world and the way that I do not want to other myself or other my children because I don't have the ability to engage in a print-free world. I don't want to create a disability where there is no disability um, because I am not able to engage, participate, understand a printed world. All of those things. 
Um, and when I don't, and I buy myself the skills, I create the skills for me to participate in my wholeness, then I can self-advocate. I can advocate. I can, listen, my mother had her, she has MS. At one point, her leg was turning blue. And I went out of my way. I did research on circulation. I found herbs. I worked with her doctor and we were able to um, get some circulation flowing by attacking her liver, you know, give it, supporting her liver ra- rather. And it saved her from having an amputation, right? Mm-hmm. This is what happens when you have access to literacy. And so when I'm thinking about literacy liberation, I'm thinking as I am able to participate as my full self in a print fear world and get access to the things that I need. This is the only lens that I have with regards to literacy. It has very little to do with school. Mm-hmm. The school is a byproduct, right? The school, that's the perk. Like I, I did well in school, great. But I was able to find voice, participate, advocate, help, be a resource, become a, re- like all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's the lens that I that I work with and develop parents in. I think a lot of people listening are probably nodding along, especially, I mean, I have an English teaching background. I know a lot of people listening are teaching in the humanities or in English, and it just makes sense. It's not about school. Like, I mean, in an ideal world, school is helping us center humanity, but we know that that doesn't always happen. And what I'm really excited about this conversation, I think part of the reason why I've been so fascinated in your work with decentering schooling is because you're coming at this from a perspective of, well, actually, I want to get into your story in a moment, but you're coming at this from a place of, we're going to decenter schools literally in our home, take our children outside of the school system, educate them with their family, the way that, you know, children learn so well with that safe and supportive support with their parents. And I'm coming at this as, you know, somebody who is, been trained as a teacher in school. Um, But my eye-opening moment was when I had my children. You know, I'm a middle-aged white woman. I have, I'm doing my PhD now. I'm educated. And I had this really naive notion of what school is. And I sent my child to school. I have a younger one too. The older one is in the school system. And during the pandemic, as many parents who found you, Nikolai, also experienced, the schools were not able to teach my child. And I think even without the pandemic school closure, it would have still happened, but perhaps we would have found out about this three years later, like many people pre-pandemic, where kids get into grade three and four, and they're like, wait a minute, they're not reading well, or wait a minute, there's all these gaps, or wait a minute, there's undiagnosed dyslexia here. I want to go to the story that I heard you share on another podcast. When your eldest son was in kindergarten, his teacher pulled you aside and told you, I I feel like this is pretty radical, what she told you as well. She saw the damage that the school system was doing to your son. You know, you talk really clearly about how your son was, you know, really advanced for his age and going into the school system that couldn't quite know how to work with somebody as bright and as skilled as he was. And she saw him kind of retreating into himself. And the teacher said to you, you should consider homeschooling him. We are damaging him. Yeah. Oh, like as a teacher, I mean, I can't 
as a parent, I can't imagine hearing that, but also as a teacher, how brave and bold that is to say, we are failing this child. So I want to kind of talk about this like overlap. Like you had a critical decision point there. You took him out of school, your younger child, you never entered them into the traditional school system. Can you talk about how you see traditional classroom teachers, what they can be doing? Because this is a podcast where classroom teachers are listening to us talk right now. How can those people possibly more fully center humanity in their practices? And maybe that's talking to the parents and that bold move, but maybe it is less radical than that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on those teachers that can go against the grain. Yeah, I have, for example, same teacher. I remember I was in her classroom and she, there was what his name was Marquise. And so he was like, Ms. Rosada, what do you do when a teacher, when a student knows how to do the work? And is refusing to do the work. And she. this was actually in public, right? And I was like, well, the first thing that we need to do is apologize for the child for speaking to, speaking about him, like, in front of him and other people, right? And and yeah. so she was just like, oh. And I was like, so in this moment, we have to repair. And, and she was just like, like, right now? I was like, no, not right now. <laughs> we have to repair this. <laughs> this is what we have. You asked me, and this is what we have to do. We have to repair. And we actually just took a few minutes and we just repaired in that moment. And we apologized to Marquis for speaking about him in public and, and whatever that brought up for him. Mm-hmm. And then, then we went into a sequence of questions and, and I said, do you have the thoughts? Do you have the sounds? Like, what is it that you need in this moment? And um, he was overwhelmed by the blank sheet of paper. And I said, it, what can we, are you open to us trying to give you line paper? Because in the morning they would have the, just like white sheets of paper and they would do the morning work. This is kindergarten. And I was like, are you open to me bringing a different sheet of paper tomorrow? And maybe that paper is not going to work, right? So maybe that, but for the next few days, we're going to work and see like, is it the paper? Is it that like, what is it? Let's troubleshoot with you and half a sheet of blank paper to do a drawing and like half a sheet of line paper later he's doing his narratives but is that is is that pausing and it feels like it's taking a lot of time away from your classroom but actually correcting Marquis every day and being disappointed and writing a home a, a note home that his work is not progressing all of that also takes time. And so pausing to say, and very similar to what we do at home, right, is we have to choose, you know, the thing. We have to choose our battle. Like, what is it, the thing? And sometimes like giving the child a thing in the moment that is centering humanity and understanding that doing the right thing for the child is always the right thing to do. So that's one way. I think she was extremely brave in telling me for the last three months, I just knew that I was doing the right thing. And at this point, I see that we're causing harm. He's not writing, he's scribbling. Like we, I under, I see him, he's going into, he's hiding underneath the, the, a desk. Like this is turning into a different child. And now they're asking me to, you know, fill out IEP paperwork, which is the opposite of what I think he needs. And so, yeah, she was like, I don't think that we're equipped to, to support your child. And and I know that you work from home and is this something that you would be able to do? And so I think one, so one would be understanding that doing the right thing is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Two, communicating with, with parents. I know that I work with that particular teacher 
and other times where she was just like, what can we do for this particular child? And I would say, let's talk to the parent. I actually went to several parent conferences and coached her through it where I said what I would tell her, this is what your child is not doing. This is how we test it. This is how we measure it. And this is how you can develop it. So giving the child, giving the parent all of that, right? And understanding, not assuming that a parent does not want all of that information, but actually assuming that a parent does want it. And not only that they want it, that they need it. And that needs to be explicitly communicated and say, we cannot do the thing. Mm. And I have one more thing, which is on the administrator side. Um, Now, this particular principal did it before it was the year that they were retiring. Um, So it was easier for them to take risks. But she four times in that year had me come in and do parent chats with the parents. And she would it would be on Saturdays. She would close the door and she would say, tell them what you need to tell them that maybe we aren't telling them. And I would tell the parents there's 10 for every 10 two are going to make it. So what are we going to do for the other eight? Mm-hmm. Like the odds in this school is 20%. This is was a predominantly low income black um, school. And I would say the odds is 20%. If that, that are going to read proficiently, like could, do we want to raffle? Because this, at this point, this is the raffle. What are we going to do about the eight? Like how are we going to address it? So really being transparent with parents it's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't just need safe spaces. We need cur- courageous spaces mm-hmm. so that we can create partnership. There's no p- partnership without transparency and courage. And not being afraid to say the hard truths. I think that the way that the school system is kind of designed is that you move one cohort of children up to the next grade like oh well maybe that will get addressed in grade two or oh maybe it'll work itself out by this grade. But what you actually train parents to do through your work, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding it, but you actually train parents to help their young people learn to read at home so that it is that consistent presence. Like it is that knowledgeable expert learning how to teach reading alongside their child learning to read so that that is the adult that can say, oh, they were having a hard time with this skill. I need to, I need to intervene or I need to support them with this or it's that consistent presence. Yeah, that's the only, until we have a school system that sees the child not as a first grader or a second grader or a yes. third grader, that really sees that child. I don't even see that child as a second grader. I hold space for the second grader who is a future adult. And mm-hmm. so, so until I can do that at the system level, then the only other place that I really can do that is as the home level. And so I equip parents to really see that and to be able to assess even, you know, I I tell parents, listen, by the time that a teacher gives you a report, the report is the evidence of what happened, even a test on a week test. This is what was covered last week and was tested. And this is the result, right? It's always in retrospect, it's always like, this is what we have seen in the last three months. So here you are as a parent waiting to get a progress report 
on something that already happened in the past. That's not the way that we solve problems and that we address problems. It's just not that very, it's not efficient. And so what makes the most sense to me is for parents to understand what are their skills going to be covered, what is required of them, and for the parent to be able. I don't need a progress report to know where my child is is or mm-hmm. isn't progressing because I know what front, what are the things that are going to be covered and how I need to know where those holes are as they come up. Because when I need, when my child needs help, it's in real time as it comes up. And so parents, there has to be a a better level of communication and transparency where we are meeting children's needs in real time instead of in retrospect. And at that point, you know, what are you doing? What am I doing? You know, the child now has a whole other set of problems if we don't do it in real time. It's interesting because even as I was hearing you speak earlier, I was thinking about, you know, like the courageousness and the importance of the school system in centering the parent's skills and knowledge and ability to be able to support and nurture and carry their children's learning through. That for me feels like, yeah, like I think many schools, at least on paper, tout the importance of family school partnerships. Like that probably isn't a huge stretch, whether it's actually done and how well it's done, another whole conversation. But I wonder too about the trauma that parents have about the school system and how nervous adults and parents and grown professionals feel when they are the ones that have to go to the school and say, something's not working. Is that true in the experience of the parents that you're working with? And how do you support adults with the school traumas that they have had to go through? Absolutely. I have teachers, I've had, I have, it happens every week. I have teachers, educators, even sent home emails and resources countering something that a parent has brought up. So I even had a teach of a parent talk to their teacher about the science of reading. Let's so the story podcast. And the teacher sent them an email with um, blogs and like other points and other links um, that supported balanced literacy and really gaslighting the parent and saying that this is just another piece of the reading wars. This is not the only time that this has happened. I've had educators like still send worksheets that are with the queuing system and a parent saying, I thought we were moving away from queuing. Um, I thought the district is moving away from curing. Like, why are we using a teacher paid teach- teachers worksheet instead of the curriculum? And, you know, a teacher responding to that. And that takes courage on the, you know, my parents can do it because like I, we build that muscle, mm. but what this is what I can say is I work a lot with parents on really reparenting their inner child and inner trauma. For example, we just started a new 12 week cohort and I was giving them some tools. I said, when do we start and when do we get our lesson plans? And I said, we do not even go into lesson plans for the, until after the first three weeks. And they're like, yeah, we want to get started this summer, you know? And I'm like, well, we can't do it because we need to get your foundation to be solid. And for you to show up as a calm, non-anxious presence, we we do visualization, <laughs> we do tapping, we do all mm-hmm. of the things to really start seeing ourselves as the calm, anxious presence to have answers. You can't counter what you don't know. You can't mm-hmm. counter something because you heard it on a sold a story podcast. Like you can't do it, right? The parents don't feel like they have authority. They're second guessing. And so 
it is important for parents to have access to the science and to have access to the science also not the science sold by the next curriculum developer. So <laughs> a third parent, you know, third party, just looking at what that science looks like, not from a curriculum developer, but what does it mean to sit in community to really like tackle all of those things and to see ourselves. Now we're really seeing ourselves as uh, it's really turning parents into experts or at least into knowledgeable sources so that then they can have, there is no partnership until when we talk about, we want to create partnership between schools and parents. There's no partnerships if we do not shift the power and if we do not equip the parent, that's not a partner. You know, it's just like we want cooperation with our children but if we are not breaking down the authoritative model really we don't want cooperation and collaboration we just want our children to do what you know we want obedience Mm. and so if at schools and at systems we're really not equipping parents and giving them resources and tools then and we're not really undoing the trauma from our childhood and how we experience schools we really will never have partnerships yeah. And so what I do in cohort with parents is we, we, we do that work and then you can navigate school systems. I think even if all teachers listening remembered how traumatizing school is for many of the parents in the class could likely just infuse every conversation with compassion and empathy and gentleness and kindness. Like I have taught I taught in an independent school and many of those families were really successful, high functioning adults, and they were terrified getting a call from a teacher. And I was terrified talking to them. Like both parties are terrified. Why don't we center each other's humanity? Yeah, both parents are absolutely terrified because both of us, they're not parties. They're people who at one point experienced childhood instead of students. So we're just adults. (laughs) We're just children who had no power instead of school systems mm-hmm. in adult bodies. Yeah. And once we start seeing that, that's why it's so scary for teachers. Sometimes even teachers, I've, I've worked with people inside of school districts where, you know, you have two master's degrees, you have a union, right? They're not going to fire you for doing something a little bit different than the curriculum. And you have this very educated teacher and the teacher does not dare to do the thing. And you're like, well, you, you're, you're not going to get fired. What is it? Like, why can't you do the thing, the thing that's best for that particular child in that moment? Like, what is going to happen? And the answer is nothing, mm-hmm. right? Nothing is going to happen, particularly for teachers with very strong unions. Nothing is going to happen. And yet they have, they live under and they operate under this cloak. That really is their inner child, yeah. right? We have to, their inner child, because you experience school without, as a child, without, a lot of agency. So we explained that to the parent and you're saying like, why are you this like very educated, high powered professional that cannot send an, that sends a hundred emails a day. It cannot send one email to your teacher to really understand one, this is how you felt as a child, how disempowered you felt as a child and you're reliving it. Mm -hmm. Two, your teacher probably felt disempowered so let's meet each other with compassion. But additionally, let's take it one step further. And how do we create a different environment and structure so that your child is not experiencing school in this way as well? Yeah. 
Exactly. Let's break the cycles of harm and trauma, which I think is really exciting to think about. I want to go back to what we were talking about with Soul to Story. So this is obviously, yeah. if you haven't listened to the Soul to Story podcast, I highly recommend listening to it. Um, but the Daily, so the New York Times Daily podcast, they obviously, like they're following what's going on and what's in the zeitgeist, but they actually followed up with Lucy Calkins. So for those of you who don't know, Lucy Calkins is a professor at Columbia and her program is one of many that were, you know, benefiting from a balanced literacy approach, but it misses the importance of phonics. It misses how central that is for how young people learn. So in this interview with Lucy Hawkins, again, I'll link it in the show notes for those of you who want to hear her. It's interesting because they were talking to her about how did you miss all of this research? Like if you are high level professor, you're making tons of money from these programs. How did you miss something that's emerging through a lot of data, a lot of research in the last 20 years? And she gave like an okay answer. But as I was listening to her, I was thinking back about, I don't even know what I was listening to, but it was about the abortion debate. And this, I think it was like another maybe daily podcast when they were sort of talking about different camps of thinking. And I'll kind of like break down this idea to you, but there's sort of like ideological baskets of thinking. And so within a basket of thinking, if you're a Republican, often it kind of just is part of that basket that you don't believe in abortion. But it's like, if you actually investigate all the individual things in that basket, you might believe in some of it, but you might not believe in all of it. But culturally, we kind of get handed this basket. Okay, you're Democrat, you're liberal. These are the beliefs that kind of go along with that. And I wonder if somebody who is in a qualitative research field, like Lucy Calkins, she is somebody who the qualitative research field was kind of pushing back against positivist science research, which kind of was coming up before the 1970s, which basically said everything had to be proven by the scientific method. Everything has to be proven by hardcore science. And that, you know, squashed a lot of research. It squashed a lot of really powerful, helpful qualitative research. So I wondered if somebody like Lucy would just see phonics as part of a basket of thinking that was from this other ideological framework that she's not part of and that she would just dismiss it. It's like when Trump was saying TikTok is really messed up and we need to investigate TikTok, but all the people who were against Trump wouldn't say we need to also investigate TikTok because Trump was saying it. So even if you were, you know, left-leaning, yeah. you couldn't say TikTok is a little questionable because Trump was saying it. But then when Trump is out of office, some time went by, now more left-leaning people are saying like, we need to really look at TikTok. That's, there's some stuff going on there. I want to just hear like you riff off of this idea of like ideological camps, how we kind of get entrenched in one way of thinking or the other and misses huge swaths of valuable research. And do you see anything connected in those rigid binaries between schooling and unschooling that maybe the schooling folks could learn a lot from the unschooling folks? And I don't know, because I'm not in that world, but could unschooling folks learn something from the school world? Just like riff off of this in general, wherever you want to go with it, I'm excited by. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't live in a binary world. It doesn't make sense to me. I have neurodiverse, a neurodiverse child, and I do four school things. So, like nature, it's it's not a very non-binary space. <laughs> and so, to me, 
I think when we think about explicit direct instruction of phonics, we think we that we don't care about rich literature and experiences. And I'm like, okay, I can do, listen, I do explicit direct instruction and I play with scarves. <laughs> like <laughs> my children will do what like, I don't have to, it ha- doesn't have to be like all fairy tales mm-hmm. and no explicit direct instruction and, or all, you know, all explicit direct instruction and no fairy tales. I don't know when those two happen or when my children like think I know that I am bracing children. And when I say children, I want to make this clear. I don't just mean my two really to me, the children in my community, as well as my clients, children, I really identify as like, we're raising them all together. So when I say when the children that I am raising, I feel that we are, we're building cultures of descent. We are definitely, we're counterculture. We are, and we're still doing explicit teaching and we're still like, okay, you, you need to learn a, write a sentence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need to learn how to write a paragraph and you need to do these things. And even if a child is like, I don't want to, or that doesn't feel good, or there's resistance and there's a lack of interest because the relationship is so strong, because we have lean in with relationship, it's like, I would not tell you to do things just to do things, mm-hmm. right? I am telling you things because I have proven myself. There's evidence here where you know that I have your best interests at heart and that I respect your whole, like your personhood, right? Because those are the context of our relationships. Then a child will say, okay, okay, I'll do the calculus. (laughs) I'll do the algebra. I'll do the, I'll do the paragraph because the relationship has been established and because I respect and uphold the person, and I'm not faking, I'm not doing it in a way that is manipulative. I really believe in the importance of, you know, the integrity of these children's personhood. I really believe in that. And therefore, because my relationship is evidence of that, when I show children, hey, I know some things about the world because mm-hmm. I've been here. <laughs> I have been here. You know, I have filed my taxes. I have done things. And therefore, I want to give you these tools because my evolutionary role as a parent and as a caregiver is to share the things that I know. This is part of my evolutionary role for you. This is why we live in, in packs with older people and younger people. This is this is the point, right? If we were in a hunting gathering community, it would be like my job would be to teach you how to weave a basket and pick the right berries so you don't die. I don't. I live in Atlanta and it's 2023, right? I have to teach you how to you know, sort through a bill. Yeah. So that your so that your rights are not violated and how to take medication so that it doesn't interact in a way that will do you harm like 50% of Americans who cannot. And so you trust me and I have made myself worthy of your trust because of our relationship. And now I am sharing information with with you so that you are not navigating in, in experiencing harm. And because that is the lens, there's not a violation of consent, like so much with unschooling or with like other other things is like, we don't want to stress the children out. Okay, let's not stress them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want to violate the consent. Let's not violate it. Absolutely. I want, we don't want to kill their joy. Absolutely. Let's not. But that in no way means that we cannot also 
give them direct instruction of the things that where the science tells us that direct instruction is needed. Or something that perhaps a young person doesn't yet have the scope and sequencing of things that like you have an MBA, you have high level math and business training that many parents don't have. So you could be looking at something mathematical or from numeracy and thinking, I know why you need to know your times tables and why it will be valuable for you to be able to just understand conceptually how numbers click together. But somebody who's seven might not see what's coming down the line. And it's, it's part of the trust. It's a part of the relationship. And somebody might say, I don't get it but I trust you. So let's, let's go. And I think that let's that's, do it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to do it in a way, you know, um, with the piece of the cognitive, here's another example that jumps out at me. I don't believe in standardized testing in testing, 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 and teaching to the test in a way that cripples a school in a way that cripples a child's personhood, right. In a deficit, you mm-hmm. know, from a moment of uh, like that creates a deficit. I don't believe in that model. Right. Um, but I do believe in testing and quizzing because the cognitive science says when I retrieve it, I pull it from my short-term memory to my long-term memory. And so when I am testing the children, what I am not doing is I'm not attaching judgment to it. Yeah, I'm not attaching uh, pressure to it. I'm not attaching a grade. I'm not like, we're not doing all of that. Because it's, it's the low that. stakes testing. Like that's actually what I think most people miss that the retrieval, like you're naming, it has to be low stakes and it has to be frequent so that it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Like I, I am for, I'm like, yes, the instruction, not the repression, right? Not the mm-hmm. shaming, not the judging, not the labeling, like all of those things that we do not like about schooling that cause harm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm for getting rid of them and, and I don't practice them. But then I have to look at the cognitive science and I say, you know what, retrieving information is the way to pull it from short-term memory to long-term memory and pulling it to a long-term memory is how it becomes a tool for a, for a person, not a child, for a person to be able to use it. And so I'm not going to throw away the science because of what schools have done with the right. t- the thing, right? And so we have to be able to to hold space for both. It's believing yeah. and doubting. I think like what I hear you say is, you know, there are these practices and can we look at them and say, okay, what do I believe about this practice? What do I, what does the science tell me about this practice? What does my gut tell me about this practice? And then what do I doubt about it? What are the things that I don't need? What part of this practice is oppressive? What part of this practice doesn't work for my individual child, the one that's sitting right in front of me? And if every adult working with young people could do that, like, you know, if Lucy Calkins could look at a whole field of research and say, what do I believe about it? What do I doubt about it? Rather than it being this like reactive thing where she's now adding phonics instruction to her programs because everyone is coming at her saying, you need to do this, like this is essential. But can we, before things blow up, believe in doubt and take what works, what fits, and leave what is harmful and oppressive? And I also want to say with regards to that and balanced literacy that we got the phonics part wrong, but a lot of the writing pieces and the comprehensions were also done wrong. And so for us to be like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just the phonics that they got wrong. No, they they got the phonics wrong, but they also got a lot of the 
comprehension and a lot mm-hmm. of the writing wrong as well. So it's very important for us to name that because we can't just be, I think that the balanced literacy people are saying, oh, but we have all of these other pieces right and we can keep them. And that's also not the truth. So if we're in this moment in the space where we're going to speak truth to this. We do have to look at the entire, like her curriculum and uh, many other curriculums that we're doing a lot of things also on the comprehension side, which I feel like for a long time, they're like, well, the narrative piece, the writing piece and the comprehension piece is really what we were going for. And we really, we really did well. And we have to also say that's not true. So let's give you some magical powers now and let's project you 25 years into the future. And we are looking at the best case scenario in how young people learn. And not just young people, because if we're like projecting this 25 years into the future, and we were sort of talking about this before we hit record, we're going to talk about how all people learn. Because what (laughs) happens in school in grade one, turns out, has a ripple effect and it affects people in their 30s. Like we can see this in digital spaces, people not reading, not connecting, not comprehending. So you are in 25 years from now. You're looking around, but instead of being in a dumpster fire, we have landed in the best possible timeline. What do you see? I would start with really returning to parenting and looking at parents as caregivers and going into the caregiving instead of the dropping children off, whether it's a school or a ballet practice or whatever it is that we have reduced our evolutionary role of caregiving into like Uber drivers that mm-hmm. provide that provide things and show showcase our love through whatever aesthetic it's there. We have really that's not our evolutionary role and we're doing the disservice to humanity by shifting. And so I really would hope that we would take a step back and understand that our role is to guide and our role is to caregive. And that we're wired not just to learn or to attend school or any of that, but for belonging. We're wired for belonging and for contribution. And so to really see and understand and give parents and children spaces where they understand that this whole thing, this the entire thing, the production, all of it, the learning, like all of it has to be from the context of belonging and contribution. And if we can get back to belonging and contribution as the reason that we're here and using education, literacy as a way to create more belonging and more contribution, then we will be aligned with science and that will enable us to learn. And then from there, in order for us to say that we belong, we also have to respect personhood, belonging means that you're accepted. And so from there, we're moving into acceptance. From there, we're moving into meeting people's needs at an individual level. But I think we've just shifted. We just forgot. <laughs> we, mm. we make it, it's not just when I work with parents, it's like, it's not just the science of reading, it's the science of being and the science of learning. We have to look at all of the signs. Yeah. And we know that the first thing is we're here to belong. That is wired. We have to get out of our brainstem. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm always like, we're stuck in our brainstem. 
all of us, I feel like we're all stuck in this brainstem, right? And it was like, we, if we need to get out of our brainstem so that we can be present and then access like our collective frontal cortex, which, <laughs> which right now is we're not accessing very well, but it's because we are, we have just moved away from our evolutionary role. And if we move away from our evolutionary role, we're all in fight, flight, we're in survival. Mm. And until we can, we can really go back into what we're wired to do, which is belong and contribute and put education in really all spaces in that lens, we will not be able to move beyond our brainstem. Mm. I, I want that quote somewhere prominent that I can look at every single day, Nikolai, because we're wired for belonging and contribution can be I mean, that's a call to action, but it's a mantra. It's a reframing. It grounds us in what is most important. And it's just so incredibly hopeful. I yeah. Mean- and when we get there, I mean, I, I believe in us. I believe in mm-hmm. us. I believe that we have evolved into we're the only species that can, other species can communicate and do things really well. We're the other ones that we're only ones that can innovate. We can take information and create something new. And so here we have this beautiful ability to do it, but the only way to access it is when we're not operating on our brainstem. And the reason that we can't do it is at a very basic level, production, education. We have forgotten that we're wired to belong and to contribute. And I think if we just shift, we will do beautiful things for children, for ourselves, we can integrate AI. We can do, there's so many things that we can do, but we have to, we have to get back to the way that we're wired. It's like schools as we know it is really coming out of this industrial model and it's coming out of the industrial revolution and schools have not, uh, in my opinion, they have not really progressed much since that initial stab at it with this like kind of factory farm model. But when we are actually thinking about education, not schooling, but education being about belonging and contribution, I think it cracks open a door into imagining it being not about this kind of like machine-like presence, like kind of going down the conveyor belt. Like you're actually, without giving like a really specific outline of how people are learning, if it's belonging and contribution, we inherently become less machine-like. We center our humanity like you so beautifully teach us all to do and the more you do it the better you get the more that you see it the more you can't unsee it and then that becomes your filter and then once that becomes your filter it's really hard for people to take that away from you so to me it's just like you know we're out here just preaching the gospel and the more parents that have heard it the more educators that have heard it the more we can move uh, i know once i read this quote that said um we complain about society, but we are society. <laughs> and so we complain about the school systems, but we are the school systems. We're upholding them. 90% of our children participate in them. The One of the biggest lies or that capitalism or really these oppressive systems make us feel is that systems are not penetrable. And that's just not true. It's not true. I One of the examples that I give people, you know, growing up, we didn't see women of color, for example, in the swimsuit model edition, right? We don't see, we didn't see plus size women or, you know, just women, really, they're not plus size, just women of all shapes. And then today we see 
trans women on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated model or like a black woman or a full figure woman. And so we did that, mm-hmm. right? We have done that. And so and that, that happened in our lifetime, right? <laughs> and so we have to remember that systems are not impenetrable. And the way that that happens is the first thing that you need to penetrate and the first person that you have to influence. And, you know, all work is self-work, self-work is daily work. And so it has to become our model, our lens. And from there we press. Hmm. That's a great point to let sit in the room as we transition. Are you ready for the ticket out the door? Yes, I'm so excited (laughs) about this. Yes. Okay, so rapid fire, don't think too hard about it. Whatever is the first thing that comes to your mind. Yes, I'm ready. Something you are grateful for today. Coffee. First thing you do when you wake up. Dream. Last thing you do before you go to bed. Say thanks. What is either the best or the worst advice you've ever received? You're smart and resourceful. Nice. Pie or cake? Cake. Beach or mountains? Beach. No, both. (laughs) Spring or fall? Spring. When you were a little person, what did you want to be when you grew up? An artist. And then finally, what is the future of learning? Humanity-centered. Okay, for the record, you are the most efficient answer of the ticket out the door that I've ever (laughs) had. Yes, everyone's like, "Mm, I don't know. But like you knew, you had decisiveness and I loved it. Thank you. Except for beach and mountains. And I'm like, can can the beach be closer? Can we get get to, like, right? That's a hard one. I know. But like when you're like on the mountain, you know, like that's a very different experience than like, on the beach looking at the mountains so you take for it for the record <laughs> before i go i'm originally from puerto rico and you could be in the beach and the mountains within 20 minutes of each other so I like that <laughs> i i, I think we should take me. a family trip there and i'll just insert myself into your family adventure to show up somewhere there yes this sounds great thank you so much for this this was such a rich and interesting conversation i am so grateful for your time and your energy and the work that you're doing and everybody i'll put in the show notes all the places that you can find nikolai because she is an important activist in this world and everybody should be following her thank you Thank you. I want to close this episode with something that Nikolai said at the beginning of the conversation. She said, literacy is not just something you do for school. This might seem super obvious on its face, but I don't think that it actually is when you unpack that statement. This episode is coming out in the middle of July, a time when many of us teachers are unwinding from the year before and meditating on the year we hope to co-create ahead. How might we collectively design a learning experience for young people that centers their humanity, that shows them and us how literacy is a tool for liberation, and that maybe, just maybe, gets us back to this idea of belonging and contributing to the world. There is so much hope and power in Nikolai's words when she says, I believe in us. So I want to end with those words in your mind as well. I too believe in us. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.